Hi there, my name is Alex Faust, and you're listening to Conversations at the Edge. Each week, we meet with the top business thought leader to learn what they think we should be prioritizing to build better businesses, positively impact our communities, and scale up. So welcome, everybody. Uh, for Conversations to the Edge, I'm your host, Alex Faust, and very, very excited to be here today with Mo Fothelbob. If you're not familiar with Mo and his work, he is the founder and president of Forum Resources Network and the co-founder of Harvard, Harvard Business School's Alumni Forums. He's authored two best-selling books and is currently working on his third, which is called A Culture of Belonging, An Antidote for the Great Resignation. And that's the topic of our conversation today. So Mo, welcome. And uh, where are you calling in from today? Thank you, Alex. Great to be with you again. Uh, I'm calling from Alexandria, Virginia. Um, but I want to dive right in. Mo, you know, the last time you were here with us, we talked about the power of relationships and the seven keys to creating great relationships in the workplace. And now you're writing this new book, A Culture of Belonging. Um, can you tell us what it's about and how it kind of stemmed from your previous work? Absolutely. And, you know, first, I got to tell you, Alex, it's been an amazing year, as I'm sure you know. You know, you've had COVID, which has turned our lives, you know, upside down. We've had the, the, the injustices in the world that we've seen live on TV. And, and obviously, that's created a lot of upheaval. And a lot of people have been working from home and not going into the office and not seeing each other. And uh, so all that has, has really um, led us down a new path and, uh, and a new way to see applications for this work that we've loved for so long. Uh, but the book, uh, you know, it came really as a result of a lot of this work. So with Google, we're doing peer groups for underrepresented minorities, either Blacks or Latinx in their global affairs division. And um, so that was kind of an eye-opening experience. We started just uh, two years ago. We're about to begin year three. And then, of course, uh, along the way, SHRM, uh, Society for Human Resource Management, came along. And uh, we've started doing a lot of work with them. And they're creating peer groups for chief human resource officers. And there's a whole program for their executive network, which I'm happy to be the moderator of. And so all of that has led me to this book, uh, A Culture of Belonging. You know, just recently, there was a conference uh, that was put on by Sherman and the Aspen Institute, uh, the Visionaries event here in DC. And um, I, I had the pleasure of, of participating in the event and speaking at the event. And um, the, the topic had to do with belonging. And one of the questions I asked the audience at the very beginning, uh, and there were about 300 people there, I asked, you know, how many of you have ever felt like you've been in a place where you don't belong? Just generally at a place in life where you felt like you don't belong. And to my uh, surprise, every single one of them stood up. Uh, so then I asked the follow-up question. I said, how many of you have found yourself in tears as a result of an experience of feeling like you don't belong? And um, I was blown away, Alex, to see everybody stood up again. And I thought, you know, that was a unique experience to me. I didn't realize it would be so widespread. And I was very moved. I was, I was actually moved on stage. I, I had a little, a little tear. And, uh, and I felt like I was in this community where we get each other and we understand each other. And I think that was the light bulb moment for me when, when I realized, you know what, that is what we need. That is what we need in companies today, because if people don't feel like they belong, 
there's all sorts of repercussions that are impacting how they're going to perform and how happy they're going to be and so forth and so on. And, you know, in the book title, Culture of Belonging, an Antidote for the Great Resignation, what does that mean to you? Can you talk about, uh, you know, what you're seeing in terms of like who's leaving the workplace and why you feel that belonging is, is the antidote? Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of research. I've seen everything from you're going to lose 40 million people are going to leave their jobs to 23% of employees will seek new employment in 2022, according to resumebuilder.com. And, you know, there's other other data out there that I'm sure you've seen some of as well. And what what struck me is, you know, people don't, don't leave their jobs just because of money. Yes, some do. People don't leave their jobs just because, you know, they feel like it. It's typically they don't like their manager. They don't feel connected. They don't have relationships at work. It's it's just, you know, a transactional experience. It's not a relational experience. And for me, it's all about relationships. If you don't have meaningful relationships, if you don't feel connected, then it does come down to, ah, will they pay me enough to make it worth my while? And I'm still going to be unhappy working in a job that I don't like, which really doesn't make sense, but people do what they have to do and not, not to judge that. Uh, but if you're not feeling that connection, you know, who's going to help you? Who's going to support you? And uh, how are you going to figure out things that you don't have the answers to if everybody's working from their home and you're not even seeing your coworkers? Uh, so it's more important to have this connection today where most people are working from their homes. Yeah, and I think it was on the past summit um, that Liz Wiseman was one of the keynote speakers. And she said that people aren't leaving their jobs because they have too much work, but rather they're having too little impact. Um, so would you agree with that? And how do you kind of see that connection of the impact to belonging? I remember the time I saw her speak at the Scaling Up Summit and I just was blown away. I think she's brilliant and I love and respect her work immensely. Um, so yes, of course, people want to have an impact, uh, but they also want to get paid. They also want job satisfaction. They also want to like their manager there. They also want to feel like they're part of a community. And so, you know, yes, I agree with her. And there's more. And so how do I see that tying? I just think if people love what they do, chances are they love who they work with. If they love who they work with, chances are they love what they do. And so I think it's a symbiotic relationship. I can't imagine personally, I don't know about you, going into an office where I don't see anybody or working from home all day where I don't see anybody. Or when I go in, nobody cares about me. Nobody says hello. Nobody says, how are you? And, or if they do, it's just, you know, cursory. It's just superficial. And so for me, you know, if I stay someplace for seven years, as I did when I was running the entrepreneurs organization, guess what? That was absolutely something where it was all about the relationships and the connections, whether it was my, with my coworkers or the board of directors or the members of the organization. Uh, that's, that's what made it. Yeah. And your book goes into a few different categories or the book that you are creating at the moment uh, based on our conversation earlier in the week. And you're going to go deeper into the role that vulnerability and empathy play and how they create uh, a culture of belonging. So I was wondering if you could tell us a, li a little bit more about the role of vulnerability and empathy and how you're defining uh, those terms. Of course. So we'll start with vulnerability. And I, I love quoting David Bradford from Stanford. 
And David Bradford says, vulnerability is the currency of relationships. And without vulnerability, relationships remain superficial. So I think we've crossed that path. You've heard about that from Brené Brown. I've certainly talked about that on the scaling up stage. And, you know, vulnerability is critical. But why does vulnerability impact empathy? And this is important. With vulnerability, we have a meaningful relationship. And if I have a meaningful relationship with you, I'm much more likely to be empathetic to your cause as opposed to if I don't have a real relationship with you. Empathy, I define as listening with your heart. I define as feeling the other person's emotions as they share their story with you. I mean, just this year, two stories that, that just I'll never forget is hearing from a Black mother saying in tears how afraid she is for her teenage Black son because he might be seen as a thug. And as a consequence, he might be in a position where he's in danger. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, to hear that in a confidential space where somebody's vulnerable and real, I was in tears. That's empathy. That is empathy. Um, another example, you know, hearing a guy say, hey, and again, he's in tears sharing this story. The hardest thing I had to do was come out to my family, to my own family, to tell them that I'm gay. Well, again, until you hear that story in that context, in that confidential environment, with true vulnerability, it doesn't resonate as much, or it may not resonate as much. It may not connect as much. Uh, I call it proximity. I call it context. Uh, think about you know somebody in China having a robbery, and you watch that in, on the news, and it, it means nothing to you. It's just data. But if that robbery is at your mom's house or your neighbor's house, it's not data anymore. Now you really care because it's kind of close to home. And, mm -hmm. uh-oh, am I in trouble here? And so empathy is putting yourself in the position of the other person, feeling their emotions and asking yourself, oh, my God, what if that was me? And now there's a little bit more caring. And now how might that impact the decisions we make as to how we deal with one another in the workplace when somebody is truly in a vulnerable place? You know, Mo, I know, you know, it's one of the strategies that you recommend inside organizations is creating these peer groups. And can you share a little bit about like what is a peer group and what are some examples that you're seeing um, inside organizations or that you're helping organizations implement? Absolutely. So first and foremost, just again, for those that don't know, uh, peer groups have been a part of the fabric of, uh, of our work for literally 30 years. Um, and so it started with, and, and my awareness of it started with peer groups at the Entrepreneurs Organization, at the Young Presidents Organization. They call them forums. It's typically a group of roughly eight people who meet every month in a confidential structured setting in order to help each other grow personally, professionally, and to have a community of support. Uh, and some of these peer groups have been together for 30, 40 years. I'm in my group since 1991. Imagine how close we've gotten and how much we know each other and how much we've shared with one another. Uh, but some of the examples. So first I'll start with Google. Uh, so Google about two years ago approached us with wanting to start a peer group program for underrepresented minorities. So these are black and Latinx folks who work in their global affairs division, mostly mid-level managers. And every month they have a virtual session. And what's been beautiful 
about these sessions being virtual in this case, because I, you know, I'm traditionalist, I prefer the in-person meetings. But what's been amazing is you could have somebody from Kenya and somebody from Rio de Janeiro and somebody from Dublin, Ireland, and call it four people from San Francisco. <laughs> and, and yet what's happening is you're making connections with people all around the world without having to travel. And you know, before COVID and before the Zoom world, that just didn't really occur to us. It wasn't really part of our way of operating. Uh, but timing has also been impeccable. So when East Group started, which was October of 2019, imagine by March, we went into full lockdown. And by June, we were in full swing with the Black Lives Matter movement. And so it was a very opportune time when we started doing these groups virtually. I was honestly a little concerned, can they be as powerful as the in-person groups? But I think because of the stay-at-home world and because of the social isolation and because of the trauma that we were going through as a country, it just made it so these people became very vulnerable very quickly and very supportive of one another very quickly. But Google, you know, they did this because of two things. They wanted to improve retention and they wanted to improve progression for this group that they're serving. How would you recommend, you know, maybe some smaller companies go about this? There's, you know, maybe 20 to 50 employees. How do you see peer groups? I mean, are they started top down? Like, you know, the the C-level is saying, hey, we want to do this thing? Or is it sometimes the individuals in the organization are saying, hey, we want to have a peer group? What are you, what are you seeing in some of the smaller organizations? That's a great question. So in a company with 20 to 50 employees, it is almost invariably the CEO that decides, hey, we're going to do this. In the case of Google, it was not the CEO that called us. Sorry to tell you. Uh, but you know, with the smaller companies, it definitely is the CEO. But one thing that's critical, Alex, is that never does anybody participate in one of these groups involuntarily. And so it's always, hey, here's the program. Here's why we're doing it. Are you interested? And then people say, yes, I'm interested. And then we do some matching to make sure that you're not in a group with somebody that absolutely would be problematic for you, right? So traditionally, these groups, you wouldn't have somebody who's your competitor. You wouldn't have somebody who's your boss. You wouldn't have somebody who's your direct subordinate. So it's really important that the matching is done properly so that there's no issue. Uh, we, I mean, again, so you could read my book and do this on your own if you're doing it on a budget. But if you do want support with building this kind of a process, we do, you know, soup to nuts. So we'll give you the marketing material, we'll do the webinar so people can actually dial in and see what it's about and ask questions and decide if it's for them. And then after that, the sign up process. And then after that, we actually get started. And we do one of two paths. Sometimes we do a training and then a group goes off and they're on their own, uh, which sometimes works, but can be risky. Uh, alternatively, we facilitate every single meeting, um, and usually they're two hours a month uh, virtually. In the case of Google, we use Google Meets, and uh, with other clients, we either use Zoom or Circles. They're asking when matching uh, business people in groups, and I'm assuming this is uh, folks who are not in the same organization, what's the most important variable you look for to ensure that the groups are successful? Is it industry, size of company? What are you looking for in terms of peer groups? Yeah, it's a very good question. And there's a little fuzzy science to answer that question. When we were doing the Harvard Business School alumni forums and getting them launched, uh, you could imagine just being a Harvard Business School alumni does not mean that you are a peer of another Harvard Business School alumni. You could literally be the CEO of a public company 
or you could be a brand new alum working at McKinsey as a junior associate. Um, and so what we first and foremost realized is you have to be in a room where you look around and say to yourself, I respect these people as my peers. And so whether that means you have 100 people reporting to you, whether that means you have a $10 million budget, whether that means you are you know, accomplished at XYZ level and you're at a certain age, we have to look at all that criteria. As far as industry, and this is really uh, tricky and interesting at the same time, we have some clients who are in the same industry, who belong to a peer group. Uh, an example is PSA Security Network. They're all security alarm dealers. And the way to make those groups work is to have people in a group from different parts of the country so that they're not in a room with competitors. Uh, so typically we work to be very sure that people are in different industries if they're gonna be meeting locally in the same geography. But if they're in the same industry, they have to be non-competitors and be in different parts of the country, if not the world. Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Edge. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share it with a friend or a teammate who you think would benefit from what we covered. In addition, you can find us on LinkedIn to get all of the updates. Or if you'd like to hear the full conversation, just visit growthinstitute.com forward slash the edge to learn how you can become a member as well. Thanks again and see you next time.